This is God's Word. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in His ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold that thus shall the man be blessed or happy that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. That's the text, Psalm 128. If you look at verse 1, you see that it begins with the word blessed. It could just as well be translated happy. It's the same word that's used in verse 2 in the middle. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. And it's a synonym of the word in verse 4, Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed, happy, that fears the Lord. Happy, happy, happy. So it's not surprising that the versification of this psalm in the Psalter has as its title, family, happiness. That's not a sign of weakness, that somehow a Reformed Christian who's sober and solid and orthodox somehow considers it weak to talk about the desire to be happy. It is simply the testimony of the Word of God. Although it probably is an attempt to be cute, one man wrote a book that was a commentary on the Beatitudes. Blessed is, blessed is, blessed is. A title, giving the title of that book on the Beatitudes, the Be Happy Attitude. And that's not a bad translation of the whole idea of those Beatitudes in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Happy, happy, happy. If you think about it, the Bible is full of that description. Think of the Psalms. Not only this one, family happiness, but think of Psalter 89, entitled The Secret of a Happy Life. And how we sing in stanza 1, He who would long and happy live, let him my counsel hear. Or another versification of it, who seek long life and happy days must learn to walk in wisdom's ways. Happy, happy, happy. That's the theme of the Word of God. God came in Jesus Christ to make us happy. And if you think that's simply my opinion, then think again because that's the way the confessions put it. Remember what Lord's Day 1 teaches in the Heidelberg Catechism and then it's repeated again in Lord's Days 2 and 3? How many things do you need to know in order that enjoying this comfort you may live and die happily? That's the Reformed faith to begin with that idea. And then you think of what the Reformed Fathers said in that other creed, the Belgian Confession. Why did God send Jesus Christ to fallen man? It says there, to comfort him, to seek him when he fled from his presence. 
promising him that he would give his son who would be made of a woman, bruise the head of a serpent, and would make him happy. Happy. And then later on in the Belgian Confession when it talks about that deep, profound, fundamental doctrine of justification, you read here that this is the happiness of man. The happiness of man. That God imputes righteousness to him without works. Happy, happy, happy. And that's the theme of Psalm 128. You want to know what makes a man happy? Do you know what path you ought to walk on if you want as a family man to be happy? Psalm 128 describes that path very, very clearly. It starts with a man that fears God. And it ends with a man who fears God. And if in the providence of God, God doesn't always do so, but if in the providence of God, God gives that man a wife and gives them children, then this sum is the prescription for the path on which you must walk in order to be happy. Happy. And so the theme of the sermon this morning on the whole of Psalm 128, I won't describe every aspect of it, but the most of it is the happiness of the God-centered home. I want to start by looking up. And I want all of you children to think in your minds up. Because you can't understand what's down here without first understanding what's up there. And explain what is the divine pattern for the good family life, the happy family life. And then come down and see what that covenant life is in homes where there is a man and a wife and children. And then in the third place, end where the psalm ends by speaking about the church, the divine purpose, and that has everything to do with the church. So the divine pattern, the covenant life, and the divine purpose. We look up this morning, not because you have a seminary professor who likes to think deeply into things, though every seminary professor and minister ought to, but because this minister this morning was looking at the text, and the text says, start by looking up. And it says, start by looking up in this way, when you want to know how you ought to conduct yourself in your ways, you ought first to understand his ways. And now, if you're listening, I think you hear what Psalm 128 says. Blessed is everyone that fears the Lord, that walks in His ways. His ways. That's what requires us to look up and see how He walks. His ways are not simply the ways that He commands us to walk in. It could be that. If someone asks you as a business owner, what's the way you conduct your business, then you say, it's this way. And I require all of my employees to walk in this way, though this way may have nothing to do with your own personal way. You have the right as a business owner to prescribe what way you want your employees to walk, but not God. When God says, blessed is every man that walks in his ways, He's saying, you want to know why your way is what it is? Because my way is what it is. 
Look up and see the heavenly pattern that explains why I prescribe, God says, your ways ought to be what they are. I think you understand that when God made man, God made man in his image so that each individual person reflected in, a, in a, an earthly way what God looks like spiritually. We Christians are created in his image, but broader than that, God created the whole of the worlds to reflect something about him, and that reflection about him also appears in family. So let's look up and see that God's ways are family ways. Because in heaven, God isn't simply one. He's more than one. Now, of course, He's only one. We worship one God. But in that one God, there are three. Three. And in that three, there's fellowship. It starts there. Persons who fellowship together. It's always of God. It's always in the Son. And it's always through the Holy Spirit. But when they work together, it's harmony and peace and joy. They speak together. They love one another. They live together. Secondly, when you look up and examine more closely what those three are doing, you you don't see Tom and Bob and Harry living together, or Mary and Sue and Ellen having fellowship and conversation together. You see a family, the kind of family that we are familiar with, a father and a son who fellowship together by means of what to us is mysterious, the Holy Spirit. But it's always family fellowship. They're not unrelated as a Tom, Bob, and Dick would be, or Mary and Sue and Ellen would be, who just happen to come together, but they are related in this way. There is a father, and out of the bosom of that father, out of the loins of that father, comes a son. And when that son is begotten by the father, he looks back at the father and sees him. And when the father looks at the son, The Father looks at the Son and sees Himself. He is the image of the Father. Because the One who came from the Father is of the very being of the Father. He's the only begotten of the Father. And that reminds you of what John 1.18 says, and I want to warn you a couple of times this morning about some Bible translations that get it wrong in some very important places. And some of the modern Bible translations get it wrong in John 1.18. They don't translate that. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, they translate that the only Son. In fact, of the matter, Jesus isn't God's only Son, but He is God's only begotten Son. And that teaches us that there is an act, an eternal act of the Father to bring forth One like Him, of His own being. So the being of the Son is identical to the being of the Father. Different persons, and now you catechism students, remember there's a difference between essence and persons. This is deep theology. But the fact of the matter is His ways are family ways. Fellowship between multiple and family fellowship between Father and Son. And in that family fellowship of Father and Son, 
the Son even looks like the Father. If you've seen me, Jesus said to those who asked him, show me the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I'm a spitten image of him. You want to know him? Look at me. You want to hear him? Listen to me. Father and Son. And then in the third place, his ways, looking up yet, family fellowship. His fellowship is so intimate, we can also read in John 1.18 that that son lies in the bosom of the father. Now you children need to know what a bosom is. Let your arms hang down from your shoulders, and everything that's between your arms, especially up here, is your bosom. And when you were little, you put your head on your dad's bosom or your mom's bosom right here. When you wanted to be close and feel safe, and comforted. When you look up, you see the Son in the bosom of the Father. Another translation, modern translation, says the only Son who is by the side of the Father. And that's wrong too. Though that's close, by the side, it's not the closeness that the Scripture describes. In the bosom, very close, as close as you can get. That's the kind of family life that God in heaven lives, lives. The Father embraces the Son, and the Son delights in being that close to the Father in the, whole, in the Holy Spirit. I, Jesus said, and my Father are one. Now we're not finished with the first point yet, looking at the divine pattern, but we're going to look as that God, a family God, begins to work outside of himself. It's not surprising then that all of the work outside of God is a reflection of what's inside God. There's a theological term in the Latin that describes that, but it's simply explained this way. What you see there is reflected in everything that you see here. And the most important thing that you see here outside of God, down from God, is this body, the church. When God begins to do a work outside of Himself, He creates the worlds as a setting for His grand work of making a family. Think of that, a family. So that when God saves people out of the fallen world, He brings them into His family. And you are called in the Scripture sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. Family. Family. You begin to see what we're getting at in this first point. He makes us His children. You weren't His children naturally, but He comes to you, sees you in your fallen condition, and says, I'm going to adopt you and make you my own. And sign the papers and say, you are mine and I am your Father. And then marvel of all marvels, We'll go back a moment. He has one son naturally, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he has the multitude of children by adoption. And we're all adopted sons and daughters in the family of faith. This family. And then, as I said, marvel of marvels. What he does to all of us, his adopted children, he begins working the work of grace in us so that eventually we begin looking like him. Looking like him. 
I've had some friends recently who say to me, and they're not trying to be very nice, the older you get, the more you look like Ed. I think, oh, well, that's the way it goes, doesn't it? The older you get, the more you look like your dad used to look when he was your age. Well, that's natural, isn't it? That's natural. That's the way God made it in a certain family. When you have natural-born children, they grow up to look like their parents. And in the family of faith, when God adopts us into the family, He does what none of us adoptive parents can do for our children, make us look like Him. Except it's not important for us to do that to our adopted children. It's not important that they be the same color as us or hair color, or facial features, or body type. What's important to us is something different, and we'll come to that then later. But what God does in His family is adopt us to be His own, and then make us look like Him, so that when people look at you, they say, I recognize who your Father is. And in fact, the older you get, if you spiritually mature, they might even say you're a spitting image of your Father. A spitting image of Him, Him in heaven, with His knowledge and His righteousness and His holiness. It's a family work that God does when He begins to save us. And He puts His own life into us so that the life we live now is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why, in the second place, when God begins a work, He calls the church the family of God, the household of faith. He doesn't simply save you and let you live in your little chamber over there and you and your chamber over there. When He saves you, He brings you together into this gathering so that we are a family. Rebuke not an elder, Paul says, but entreat him as a father. And the younger men as brothers, and the older women as mothers, and the younger as sisters. That's Paul, but go back to Jesus. Paul taught that because Jesus taught that. Remember that incident where he was busy teaching and the crowd was so great no one could get near him, and people then conveyed the message, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. They want to talk to you. And what must have been very painful for Mary is that Jesus saw them and said, everyone who does the will of my Father is my mother and my brother and my sister. He was teaching us what he taught Mary at the end when Mary and John were down there and he was up here on the cross. He said to Mary, behold thy son. And to John, behold thy mother. They weren't related by blood but they were related in the family of faith. Christ is our elder brother. Romans 8, 29 says He's the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn. He's the elder brother of us. In the fourth place, we fellowship with God in family love around the family table. I'm going to walk around the front of the pulpit. Nope. It's over here. The table. Often it's there. This table is a symbol, a very important symbol, not only of what happens four times per year for us, that 
every three months we get together and have a family meal that we do in a very important symbolic way but what happens every time we come together we're sitting around a table eating a meal the father is at the head of the table God speaking through the appointed servant so that when you're hearing him you're not hearing the servant you're hearing God the father is at the head of the table and all of you are gathered around the table which makes me lament that we don't do what the brothers and sisters friends of ours in South Africa and Namibia do even in large congregations whenever they have the Lord's Supper they put tables in the room they of course don't have fixed benches because then you couldn't put tables there but they move all of the chairs out put tables and every table has a group around it and they break a common loaf and they pass a common cup to symbolize the importance of what this is when we come together it's family fellowship that God in heaven who lives a family life as the divine pattern begins working and makes his crown work a family and so when we go home when we die and when Jesus comes again he's going to make all things new and he's going to bring us into the family the perfect family in my father's home are many mansions and I'm going to prepare one of those rooms for you a place for you not a separate isolated place but just to make you know he says there's going to be a place for you in my home and it's all possible people of God because God gave his son there's the fundamental difference between his family and our families no one gives their son for the salvation of the younger brothers and sisters of that son but this God in heaven did he gave his son so that all of us could have a place at his table and he gave his son to be eternally rejected from that table so that he cried out the one who was in the bosom of the father and loved that place why father why have you forsaken me and the answer of the father you know is so that you and I could have a place at the table family family God and then you understand why God designed our families to be in the shape that they are I'm not in the second point yet but we're establishing what verse 1 says you can't understand the rest of Psalm 128 unless you understand verse 1 that walks in his ways what are his ways you see why good family life is so important not first of all that we may be happy although that's right there at the top but good family life is important so that when people see your family they say that's a reflection of a family in heaven that's what you want and that's why the devil is so interested in undermining undermining families because he hates happy people he despises families that glorify God and so he's pro 
divorce and pro-homosexuality and pro-abortion. And he howls with joy when he's able to succeed in entering into a home and a family and wrecking havoc in that family. Look up. There's two couples here this morning. I imagine that they're here. One just got married. Another is going to get married just for you. But for all of the other young families and couples, look up. Look up and say, that's how I want my family to be. And it all starts, the covenant family life, now I am in the second point, it all starts with a man who fears God. Happy, happy, happy is the man who fears God. That's the way verse 1 starts. It's the man who fears God who's going to walk in his ways. Start with a fear of God. And you know that that fear of God isn't terror. The man who fears the Lord isn't afraid of God unless he's walking in impenitent sin. But he fears God. That is, he honors God and respects God and loves God so much. Why? Because God gave him a place at his table. And he doesn't deserve to have a place at his table. God made him a member of the church and he doesn't deserve to be a member of the church. He does everything that he can to forfeit that place that he has in the church. He sees what the elder brother did and he would never be able to do to give him a place at the table. And because of all of that, he fears God, reverences God, esteems God so highly and is going to do everything in his life in order to honor the God who gave him a place at his table. It starts there. He fears God. Happy is that man who fears God. And now let me take a little diversion a moment and say the happiness of the man who wants a wife and children and a home is not that he has a beautiful home on a lake furnished with all the fancy appliances and modern furniture, closets full of clothes that are current, cupboards that are overflowing in a garage with cars that are new and a barn in the back with a boat and trailers. You may have those things, but don't ever think that that's going to make you happy. Happy is the man that fears God and walks in his ways. This is the happiness of man, the one who knows that God does not impute sin to him. This is the happiness of man who understands what it means to live and die in the knowledge that he's a sinner, but he's been saved by grace. And then in the third place, he's a grateful child of God who obeys and prays. And that's the outline of the catechism. Happiness isn't tied to your boat and possessions and vacations and bank accounts. It isn't. But I've been in the ministry for 40 years now, and I've seen a lot of people who thought it was. And in those troubled marriages that I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot of them, as many, if not more than half, were marriages where they had all kinds of stuff and things. And dad and mom 
And husband and wife imagined that their happiness was getting those things. And so I urge you, people of God, if you have the ability to get things and have many things, cars and boats and trailers and lakes and bank accounts and clothes and everything that you want, if you have the ability to do that, please. No, preaching doesn't say please. I urge you and exhort you in the name of God. Don't ever leave your children with the impression that your happiness is tied in those things. Because their happiness isn't tied in things. It's tied in this. You fear God and you love Him. Happy is the man that walks in His ways, whether he has a wife and whether married they have children or not. Happy is the man who understands this family and the blessedness of the church. That man, if he has a wife, wants her to be a fruitful vine by the sides of the home. Now we go back to the psalm and see some of the details. That man wants to marry a woman who also fears God because two can't walk together unless they be agreed. And she agrees the most blessed thing of anything is that she too can put her feet under the table of God with the rest of the people of God and the family of God. That's the kind of woman the man wants. She fears God too. And when she fears God, she says, my aspirations are to have a family that's big. I'm a fruitful vine. I hope. I don't know. I pray I can be. But I want to be a fruitful vine. That is, now put your mind, children, not up in heaven, but out in Israel where on the rolling hills were grape vines. Think of the twelve spies who went into the land of Canaan to spy it out. They came back with a report that there are grape vines hanging with clusters of grapes like we've never seen. Fruitful vines producing all kinds of grapes. That's the kind of woman this wife wants to be if God permits that. A fruitful vine with many children. And that's why another translation is so off base when it says, translating this fruitful vine, contented in your home. Well, of course she's going to be contented in your home, but that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says this woman is a fruitful vine. She bears as many as she can, and in that way, she reflects the relationship between us and Christ, the bridegroom, and we the bride. When the relationship between us and Him is healthy, then many children from us are going to confess their faith and become members of the church. And when the relationship between the congregation and Him is healthy, then others from outside of the church are going to join. And whether you can compare this to natural birth and that to adoption, you think about that. I'm not declaring that. That's how it goes when the relationship in the church and Christ is good. And so when the relationship between a woman and her husband is good, she wants to be a fruitful vine and bear many, many children. Many children. Women mustn't look at fruitfulness as a burden, but a blessing. Women in Israel mustn't be afraid to have many children. Many. Far from being a curse, this is the blessedness of the woman. If in God's providence, He gives her the ability, this is her blessedness. And yet, I hear sometimes, and I understand that too, 
A woman says, yeah, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, but what about me? My quiver is about ready to burst, and I'm about ready to break under the load. And then there's great sympathy. And it ought to start in the heart of a man whose wife has children, many children. But the Word of God encourages us. The women shall be saved in childbearing. Ordinarily. Ordinarily. But when the trend today is to have one or two and the butt of jokes in the grocery store is when you're pushing that grocery cart, you've got two or three preschoolers in tow. When you're the butt of jokes, and even your gynecologist is angry with you and you're pregnant with your third or fourth or fifth. And even some Christians ask, why would you want so many? It's very difficult these days. And then the encouragement of this word is important. She shall be a fruitful vine. And then second about the woman, it says she's by the sides of the house. Now get the figure clear quickly. It's not outside of the house, but as Jonah was by the sides of the ship when he was running away sleeping there in the bottom of the ship, right in the heart of the ship, And as David was by the sides of the cave when he was fleeing from Saul, way deep down in that cave, in it, so also the woman is by the sides of the house. And so what does Paul say to, what does Paul say to Titus? The older women teach the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, and Keepers at home. Give no occasion, Paul says to Timothy, for the enemy to speak reproachfully. And the way they do that is that the younger women marry and bear children and guide the house. Marry, bear children, guide the house. That's the calling. And it's no little uh, occasion for reproach and blasphemy when women of the church say, I don't want to be that kind of mother. And to me, it's a a pitiful thing when six o'clock in the morning, I'm going down Port Sheldon to seminary. And car after car is turning in that early learning center which is a euphemism to ease the conscience of the women who know they're supposed to be taking care of those little ones, but don't. By the sides of the house. And I know that there are great pressures there too. But women, this is the highest calling in all of the world. Your place is more important than the President of the United States, if I may hyperbolize just a little bit. Your place is so, so important. And no mother ought to conclude that because their husband doesn't make enough money that she's compelled to bring the children to the early learning center or somewhere else. And now I want to be very careful, very careful. There are pressures. I understand that. There are families whose school tuition, if they send their children to the grade school and the high school, is $30,000 in a year. That's astounding. 
$30,000. What's an average wage for a man today? And he takes that chunk of it to put it in Christian school tuition and pretty soon, and I'm going to write a standard bearer editorial on that this week, God willing, pretty soon. They say Christian schools are not affordable any longer. And so we, family, family need to do everything we can, giving so liberally to that tuition assistance fund and so generously to the benevolent fund. And the deacons need to have their eyes open and their ears attuned and be proactive asking so that no woman forsakes her calling to be a keeper at home because her husband can't, legitimately cannot make enough. And you and I ought to be willing to sell our homes by the lake and all of our fancy toys in our barns and live in a trailer if one woman is tempted to leave her children in order to make enough to support the family. That's not an exaggeration. And then the children will be like olive plants round about the table. Two things to say about the wife. She's a fruitful vine and she's inside the house. And two things to say about these children in this happy family. Ideal, of course, but this is what we aim at if in the providence of God he gives us children. Two things about children that they are olive plants. And now you children need to look and think again about Israel and see that grove of olive trees out there, large, beautiful, flourishing, profitable olive trees. They were useful for everything. That's why the land was rich if there were olive trees that were bearing fruit. Cooking, eating, medicine, cosmetics, fuel. It was not for nothing that Jotham in his parable called the olive tree the king of the trees. But they grew so, so slowly. You plant vegetables in the spring in Michigan, two months later, they're bearing fruit. You plant some fruit trees, and a couple of years later, they're bearing fruit, but not olive trees. It took a long, long time and careful nurture before they became fruitful. And that's why it was a sign of peace in the land if there was a grove of olive trees, because whenever there was war, the enemy would come and scar the trunk of the tree so that the tree would die. And so you see flourishing olive trees, and you say there's peace in this land. And that's the figure of speech used to describe covenant children. They shall be like olive trees, olive trees, valuable children to the glory of God, for the edification of the people of God, the encouragement of the saints, the coming of God's kingdom, the doing of God's will, profitable children. But oh, how slowly they grow. And oh, what careful nurture it takes to bring them up. I think all of the way to the other extreme in the animal world and the reptiles who don't see one day of their parents' care. They're just out and gone. And then I see other animals that come closer to humans and it takes a long time before those little ones are able to be off 
but that's at the most a couple of years for some of them. And then God created us, us. We're after year one and two and three and four and 10 and 12, you say they're not ready. We have a lot of work to do. And when they get to be 14, 15, 16, 17, you say, where is all the time gone? And then you realize, and you young couples who are just about to be married or just married, you have children start now, realize the tender, careful, constant care that they need in order to become the olive plants that are fruitful in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That requires peace too, doesn't it? Sometimes the enemy comes and there's schism in the church. And sometimes the first casualty in war and schism is that the kids are gone. The young people grow up and they say, not here, not here. So elders and parents and older people do everything in your power to keep peace here, everything. Live peaceably as much as it is possible here. Don't compromise truth or godliness for peace, but do everything you can to keep peace because the young people are so fragile and need your care. Constant, long, careful care. And then a word to you children. Your olive plants round about the table. Now think of your dad's and mom's home and the dinner table there. And he gives you a chair. He sits at the head and he gives you a chair and you put your feet under his table. How often does that happen after you turn 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 and you have sports on this night and some other activity on another night? How often are your feet underneath dad's and mom's table? And so this is an exhortation not just to you children, young people, but to dad and mom too. Your life needs to be governed not by your children's athletic ability, but by your calling to have children round about your table where you as the head and the father are teaching them and loving them and telling them about your love for them and your hard work to provide for them Maybe $30,000, though you don't brag about that to them. You just do it, and they observe it. But you want them there around the table so that you can open the Word of God and read it to them and pray with them and ask them to confess their faults to you, and you confess your faults to them. And you talk about the Word, and you sing the Word. Family. See that up there, the divine pattern? See this here, the grand work that God does in the church of Jesus Christ to make it a family? If your feet aren't under the pew ahead of you, then the rest of your family is very concerned and probably the elders are going to start by calling you and saying to you, why weren't you at the family meal Sunday evening? Of course, your elders are fathers to you. They love you. They don't want you to miss any meals. And when you become a member of the church, then you make a commitment to be there at the family meals, not three times a year, not even once a week, but twice a week. You make a commitment. I want to be here and put my feet right there so that 
The Father can speak to us through His appointed servant. And we can commune together as the people of God, confessing our faults to each other, praying one for another, loving each other. And that's the way it needs to go in your homes too. Children like olive plants round about your table. Doesn't that all bring us to the end of the psalm? Because the end of the psalm brings us back up, not from these little families where there happens to be a husband, wife, and some children, because there are a lot of childless couples, single members, widows and widowers. The earthly family isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is here, here. And all of the earthly families need to be living for here too. And when dad and mom are around about that table talking with their children, they're talking about what Sunday is going to be about, what catechism is about, what Bible studies are all about, and what our life is in caring for the poor and ministering to the sick and living in this family. And if you need to read Psalm 128 again, then you do that when you get home. But let me just point out, the last two verses say that the source of your blessing is in the church. And the goal of your life is also church. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. And Zion is the picture of the church. It is the Old Testament church. Where does your blessing come from? Where does all your joy come from? From Zion. And then your goal is Zion too. Thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel, thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem. And Israel and Jerusalem and Zion are all words simply for the church. And so the divine life that you see up there is manifested here in the church. And some of us have the privilege for a little while, a little while to have an ideal family. Dad, mom, kids maybe grandchildren. Some of us have a privilege for a little while to have that kind of family. But remember, people of God, the family that endures and that's most important and apart from which you have no blessing is this one right here. The family of faith. The household of God. Find your blessings in it and live your life for it to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we pray for all of the members here, whether they have earthly families or their father and mother have forsaken them. Whether they are married or single, bless every member, O God, through this congregation and membership here, And bless every family that exists here to the glory of thy name and the good of this congregation. Father, we have sinned. We are so weak. We look back, many, to our lives and the rearing of our children, and we confess many faults. Lord, overrule our faults and correct us. And if we have sinned against our children, enable us today to confess that fault to them and plead with them for forgiveness. And if, Father, we have sinned against this family, the family of faith, 
then grant us today to confess those faults to thee too, and if it's appropriate to one another, that there may be a healthy family here, and good meals every week here, and unity and peace and blessedness here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.